Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, February 28th, 2022. I'm John Bonhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, inviting you, if you are in or want to take a brief sojourn to South Florida, to join us on April 6th at the live to tape taping of the Commentary Podcast. We will all be there. I'll be there. Noah will be there. Abe will be there. Christine will be there. We'll have some special guests, I believe. And uh, it is in Palm Beach. Go to commentary.org slash live podcast to reserve your seat today. We have limited access. And so um, you're going to want to make your plans now. Um, and uh, the venue and the time and everything else like that will be revealed to you uh, when you sign up. Um, uh, it's in the late afternoon. That, that's all I'm, I'm going to say right now. The other thing I'm going to say right now is to welcome my fellow panelists who will be with you on April 6th in South Florida. That, of course, is executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Back with us after a week away, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Tanned, rested, and ready, and always not really very tan and often not rested, but always ready, associate editor Noel Rothman. Hi, John. You you didn't like that because I look. He, he look has the best other. tan of all of us. Honestly. <laughs> you called me okay. pale and sleepy. <laughs> well, you have you have two small. It's not children. wrong. You have two small children, and I see you every morning on a on on this on Zoom, and uh, and you're you're you know you could use a little uh, vitamin D, is what I'm saying. You all use right. a little well, time out in the sun, as could fair we enough. All. I'm, I'm putting in for all. time, then, John. We need okay. a tanning bed sponsor. <laughs> we need a tanning bed sponsor. Uh, yeah, that's that's all we need. <laughs> We're already dealing with sponsors I we shouldn't have. So um, speaking of sponsors we shouldn't have, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk have a sponsor they shouldn't have. And um, uh, I guess we, along with the world, just sitting uh, uh, like lost in, in, in wonderment and confusion at uh, at the first four days of the uh, Russian uh, war on Ukraine. And the uh, amazing capacity of the Ukrainians uh, not to roll over and and uh, and let the Russians have their will in this the largest uh, country geographically in Europe, by the way, the size of Texas. Um, uh, every indication appears that Vladimir Putin bit off more than he could chew, uh, at least as he expected it. And I've been thinking about this over the course of the last 25 to 30 years. And most of the wars that we have seen that don't involve like small actors going toward each other or sort of something like that um, have not featured intense, uh, you know, opening combat. Like if you think about the, the wars since the, since sort of like 1990, you know, uh, America's two wars against Iraq. Um, we went in with overwhelming force and basically faced very little resistance. Uh, the Russians going into Abkhazia, into into Crimea, um, into Grozny, various other places, did not face a lot of resistance. Um, we went into Afghanistan, did not face much resistance. And so there may have been a kind of weird first power, great power expectation uh, that once you decide to commit to war and you're actually going to use mechanized infantry and you're going to use planes and all of this, that the that the person you go to war with or the country you go to war with is just going to fold up and die and, and just sort of give way and be like, you know, cry, crying on the streets of Paris as the tanks roll down the Champs-Élysées and you occupy their country. Putin there is no way that Putin anticipated what's happened over the, over these first four days. Um, and it is an interest. It's a very interest. I, I think there, we have reason to understand better reason to understand why given this little potted history, I just laid out of why it may have been unthinkable to him. He's been, he's been the leader of Russia for 22 years. He has had his will militarily when he has decided to commit military forces uh, in his near abroad. And suddenly he is facing a committed, highly populous, not exactly first world, but not exactly second world country with, you know, uh, good metro and, you know, 
international communications and uh, and a lot of connections to the West and all of that. And um, uh, the Russians have been rocked on their heels to, to some degree. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's, there's two things I think we should do to update the audience on what happened this weekend, which is an extraordinarily eventful weekend. Uh, an entire section should be devoted to the West's response because it heralds nothing less than a new era of geopolitics. Um, but to your points, John, those, the, the fighting in Ukraine, Russia's encountering two weird conditions that I don't think we anticipated and certainly they didn't anticipate, which is slowing their advance. The first is tactical. And that is that they have not committed to using Russian military doctrine. Um, we would expect to see combined arms. We would expect to see, as you say, a blitz of mechanized infantry and troops supported by infantry, uh, <laughs> take out the command and control, ground the air force, all that stuff in the early hours of, of, the, of the fighting. That did not occur. Uh, and we can speculate as to the reasons why. They're uh, all speculative, all just guesswork. Um, but there's some some logic to it. Perhaps you don't want to destroy the country you seek to occupy and pacify. The second is logistical. Logistically, Moscow has not prepared for the kind of supply lines, maintaining the supply lines that it needs to reinforce an active front. We've seen ammunition and fuel supplies moving to uh, the front lines of this uh, fight fail, be sabotaged, undersupported. Um, and as a result, you have uh, plenty of images of equipment, fully operational equipment, up to and including uh, tanks, you know, uh, T-90, T-90 tanks just abandoned, uh, anti-air batteries, really important stuff, just like left on the side of the road. Uh, and that's contributing to uh, what we're seeing in social media, at least, and in uh, news reports from people on the ground that Ukrainian forces are, are holding their own, that air superiority is not still, Russia does not have air superiority over the skies of Ukraine. Uh, the major population centers are still being held and resisted. Um, there's talks ongoing, apparently, uh, tentative peace talks in, in Belarus, uh, which I don't know if they're going to be fruitful, especially since Belarus is expected to join the fighting uh, directly uh, within the next coming hours. Um, but you know, Russia is beginning to embrace tactics it had previously avoided, most of which are horrifying. If the images that we're seeing out of Kharkiv, um, which is the second largest city in, in the country, it's on the Russian border, um, apparently using... Uh, heavy barrages of unguided rocket attacks, MRLS rockets into civilian areas. Uh, if they want to transform the city into Aleppo, they really can. They haven't so far, but we're beginning to see the very beginnings of what could be a spectacular human, human catastrophe. Um, and the idea here that Russia could lose this fight is not something that anybody really has wrapped their minds around. We talked about, oh, what the horrors would be if Russia won, but that wasn't an unimaginable outcome. That was likely a, the most likely outcome. Now we have to begin to process the idea of Russia losing this conflict, as in not achieving its strategic objectives. And that's infinitely more scary. If you Look, really start you know, to think about uh, it. I just want to mention one thing. So he's invaded a country, a large country, relatively speaking, of 44 million people. Um, you know, this is not us invading, you know, Kuwait, you know, or being in Kuwait in an effort to roust out uh, the Iraqis. There are three million people in Kuwait, and you know half of Kuwait is uh, is unoccupied desert. This is a this is a populous, uh, uh, vibrant place, and you, we, you talk about Russia winning. And one of the interesting aspects of this is when you look at the map, and you look at Russia, and you look at what's around it, you look at the you look at the the coastline and all of that. It's like what does it even mean to win exactly? The only way you win is to decapitate the government and install some kind of a functional puppet government that can work your will because you're not going to occupy a country of that size. You're not going to take administrative colonial control of a country that size. It's huge. It's huge. Now with less it's than a quarter of a million of... troops, you don't. Right. I mean, I, I mean, it's... You know, and 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 they have all kinds of escape, or they have borders with I don't know how many five countries. They have they have a gigantically long you know water border. I mean, this is not some isolated place you can sort of close and choke off. I mean, theoretically, you could choke off Kiev, you can choke off the cities, and maybe you can decapitate the government. But what is it that is going to be won here? That that is where I think 
the people that we've been listening to, Michael McFall and others who say that they see a mental or you know a, a stability degeneration in Putin may have some kind of a point because step back like three paces and you're like, what's the what's the goal here? Like the goal only works if everybody uh, does if everybody fulfills your worst expectations of them. If the Ukrainians fold, if they don't put up a resistance, if Zelensky flees, and if NATO and the West, and we'll get to exactly what what uh, what uh, Noah was talking about, if NATO and the West um, believe that their financial interests and and uh, and uh, the sort of le- creeping pacifism that has overtaken these countries, um, you know, conspire to mean that the NATO response is half-hearted um, and uh, and and toothless. And so you're you're betting Putin was betting on a whole lot of things breaking his way. Uh, that I think we're all heartened to see are not breaking his way. But that, but that's that's where they're linked, right? The what you started out with talking about the resistance, the extraordinary valor of everyday Ukrainians, their beautiful stubbornness in the face of this invasion. None of that, without that, and and certainly without a leader like Zelensky, I think Putin could have been like, oh, we're going to roll in like we did in Crimea, like we did in Georgia, like the idea that the people themselves would resist and resist with every fiber of their being, making Molotov cocktails to hurl from their roofs, you know, signing up from the uh, all the men being willing to, you know, bear arms and citizens willing to fight in the streets. I mean, the, the most extraordinary image I saw over the weekend was this guy with, of course, you know, he's Ukrainian, he's got a cigarette dangling out of his mouth, picking up a mine that had been placed under a bridge and just like very carefully walking with the mine to get it out of the way so nobody gets blown up. Like these people are doing an extraordinary thing. And that is actually what I think helped galvanize the leadership. We know that when Zelensky phoned into that EU meeting over the weekend about sanctions, it was his heartfelt testimony to what was going on in the in the the willingness that people had to fight this fight. That's what turned and changed their minds and, and got Germany in particular to start committing to weapons and, and all the stuff that the Ukrainians need. I don't think Putin was expecting any of that, obviously. And, you know, it, it has actually turned the minds of the West and, and brought, we were talking before we started taping, some, some enormous amount of clarity to the idea of good and evil and what is happening in Europe right now is a very stark example of a lot of the stuff that we tend to spend time seems petty right now. But I really think that how the Ukrainian people themselves have responded is the key here. And had they not, we would be in a very different conversation right now. I mean, without question, the 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 remarkable acts uh, of of Western governments over the last three days are entirely responsive to the conditions on the ground. Um, If it was a if it were a foregone conclusion uh, that Russia was going to end up basically re re annexing Ukraine, uh, the kind of more cynical rail politic voices in the West would say, we really ought to cut the best deal we can here and 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 see what kind of uh, see what kind of um, concessions we can get in exchange for not levying the worst of the sanctions. And that's that's exactly what 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 hasn't happened. And um, uh, anyway, Abe. So, I mean, also on this point of, of what it would mean for Putin to win at this point. So there are reports that that he's sent in a team of mercenaries to find and kill Zelensky. I, I don't know if they're accurate. I don't, but it's it's certainly in the realm of the thinkable. Um, if he were to do that, given what Christine just described, um, Zelensky's rightful elevation um, as as this global hero and defender of a um, sort of relatively stable uh, order of of you know uh, democratic nations and 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 pushback on tyranny um what kind of victory would that be for 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 putin to have to have created this martyr um he's certainly he's not going to see any sort of swift any sort of fast uh, uh pullback of sanctions and punishments on on russia in that event either so he's he's in a bind, I think, to some degree, no matter what now. That's the problem. <clears throat> that's the scary part. Right. That is the scary part. And that's that's part of where you've got to, like, um, pull back a little from the um, unbelievably stirring and heartening things that are happening over the last three or four days and just say, 
he still has the capacity to inflict the most horrifying damage on that on that nation um and you know indeed i would say if he had was withholding that it was because he was hopeful or thought precisely what i was talking about in the beginning which is that they would fold without him having to destroy the command control and communications destroy the destroy you know destroy sort of civilian uh means of transportation and all of that um because he would prefer to have a relatively intact country to dominate and that now he's going to face this choice which is does he bomb it back into the stone age i mean uh and and he can uh i we believe i mean i don't know maybe he can't i i don't really know he did he did it to grozny what what was that 2000 2006 2000 right i mean he he did basically level the you know chechen capital so it's not that they it can't be leveled but um uh, it's interesting because, of course, by not doing what he did, he allowed the, he allowed himself to lose the information war almost instantly. If he had cut off, if he had done what supposedly he has the ability to do and sort of cut off Ukraine, off social media, off the Internet, you know, sort of EMP, EMP'd like it's, um, you know, its ability to communicate over, over cell traffic and all of that, then we wouldn't have seen footage like the guy carrying the mine or... Uh, or any footage like the uh, Western news news networks wouldn't be broadcasting from those roofs because they wouldn't be able to get their their footage out and all of that. That's sort of what you would expect would be a total information blackout. And he didn't pull the trigger and it was a or he didn't. It failed. He might have tried and it failed. Too. Ah, I mean, interesting. Right. We haven't heard that. Right. But I mean, if he didn't, it was, a you know, just speaking strictly in the most cynical possible terms it was a huge tactical failure strategic failure did, huh yeah it's a strategic failure now and this is why it's so absolutely terrifying is the the prospect that russia is facing down the, the barrel of a of a strategic loss uh greater than anything the soviet union ever experienced um and that'll make somebody do some really weird things to try to rebalance the situation we have we haven't talked about the western response briefly to summarize a weekend of profound seismic geopolitical events um all of europe including japan south korea australia singapore basically the entire civilized world is has joined in a campaign to crush the russian economy um how a russian accesses dollars pounds or yen today i have no idea because every asset that I can see um, that's accessible by the central Russian bank has been frozen. Um, Germany has abandoned its position uh, towards uh, pacifism. They're fully engaged in exporting weapons, cutting off Russia from uh, Nord Stream 2. That's not something that's reversible anymore. Um, Turkey has engaged. They have declared this a war. They have invoked a 1936 treaty that allows them to close the Bosphorus. Um, Sweden and Switzerland have abandoned neutrality Neutrality is over in Switzerland. Um, they're engaged in sanctions as well. Finland, Sweden, and Kosovo are all making noises about joining NATO. Kosovo has submitted a formal application. Uh, Japan wants nuclear weapons. Uh, they want to host nuclear weapons on Japanese mainland. Uh, that's new. That sort of goes against the Constitution. Uh, the United uh, European Union has fulfilled its mission as a security alliance for the first time by exporting offensive fighter jets introducing them into Ukraine. We don't know whether they've arrived or not, but the EU has made that commitment. And energy sanctions are not being pursued by any Western nation, but they're fulfilling themselves organically uh, as companies like British Petroleum uh, disinvest in the deposits that they have uh, interest in inside the Russian Russian territory. Um, So you're staring down the barrel now of a a tremendous strategic loss. The Europe that existed last week no longer exists. It is profoundly oriented against Russia in a way that'll box them in, make them very nervous. Um, and Russians have a tactical habit of escalating to de-escalate, to scare the shit out of you, for lack of a better word, with a profoundly terrifying display of force to get you back to the negotiating table. Um, if Russia still has a tactical book or a doctrinal book that they follow, that's really at the top of the list. And it's why we should really begin to think about, well, nobody has any appetite for it right now. Everybody wants to see Russia punished. And there's no equilibrium here. We don't know what the, the forces are on the ground or who has who has control or who has uh, uh, you know, advantages over the other. So there's going to have to be a lot more fighting 
before we see something that looks like a, an off-ramp. But we need to start thinking about an off-ramp. We need to start thinking about a way to get Putin to see something akin to something they can call an achievement here and back down, because if he's denied all access to anything resembling a face-saving way out of this crisis, he will continue to prosecute it, and it'll get more and more dangerous. Right. Okay. So I just, uh, you know, and then of course we have Germany, right? We have Germany announcing that it's going to spend, it's going to radically increase its defense spending. Uh, the new chancellor, uh, Olaf Scholz, um, our friend, Michael Lewis, who's a professor of art at Williams, but also is a, is a brilliant um, student of German history and of German politics. I mean, email this morning, uh, he said, um, did you happen to catch the German chancellor's speech? I watched it in German and it was staggering in several ways. First, how Schultz's call for rearming Germany was received, i.e. first with startled gasps, then general acclamation. Only the hard right uh, was ambivalent, some clapping, others stone-faced. Second, there was a bracing tone of sober resolve, entirely free of platitude or cliche, entirely free of petulant threats. I would almost say Churchillian, except being German, he had no humor. And third, there was not a single reference to the U.S. in the entire speech. He spoke only of Europe or the worldwide community, not even alluding to the U.S. obliquely. Biden, by implication, is a non-entity. Anyway, like they say, I watched the whole damn thing, so you didn't have to. So um, uh, Germany's uh, transformation, and you know, and uh, we we should talk about the larger meaning of this. Uh, the only thing that I want to uh, kind of uh, analogize this to is what happened in the United States in 2013 when it appeared that the public had had enough of foreign adventures. Right, uh, the 65 percent of people said they were glad we pulled out of Iraq. Uh, we, you know, we had pulled out of Iraq. ISIS rose. Nobody cared. Now, Rand Paul was the flavor of the day with his neo-isolationism on the cover of Time magazine, the idea that he was the future of the Republican Party, this new consensus against military action. And then two Americans were kidnapped by ISIS and, and, um, and tortured and, and killed. And um, public opinion in the United States flipped on a dime, went from 65% opposed to engaging with ISIS to 65% wanting us to destroy ISIS. And I think we're seeing something very comparable to that here, that in theory, people don't want to be involved in Europe and they don't want to be involved in wars and they don't want to be involved in this as, as long as it's all abstract. Seeing actual events unfold and hearing on the news that, you know, uh, Europe is alarmed and is kind of like uh, lining up on the border with Russia to make sure that there are no incursions, you don't have to just be somebody who lived through the Cold War and you know was older than forty, so you remember what happened before before the uh, before the Berlin Wall fell. Um, uh, we and the West aren't ready to give up the ghost yet on the idea that we're there to protect the international order, that we we stand for freedom and all of that. And we didn't, you know, there are these moments that test. That those notions, uh, the ISIS moment was one of them, and this is clearly another, and probably on a vastly larger scale, um, that the uh, this presumption uh, that um, the West is a is a dying ember, right? It's a dying, it's a effectively a dying ember. Trump said, you know, pay your pay your dues, or look, no one's gonna, you know, we're never gonna invoke Article Five, you know, come on all of that stuff. You have to go your own way. I don't like Europe. And that's all fine until the rubber meets the road, until there's an actual thing. And it's not all theoretical and it's not all whining and complaining about how what people are doing abstractly with 2% of their GDP or not. There's a threat. Whose side are we on? Are we on the side of Putin? Or are we on the side of the West? And, you know, we have 200 million, 250 million people in this country who... <laughs> whose origins lie in Europe. And so, you know, even if those origins are 200 years old and, um, and uh, that is who we are. And, and that is who, and that it turns out is also who, what Europe is like very, that's why the world has changed here. I mean, no, you're talking about J Japan and others, of course, also fascinating and interesting in terms of uh, what they think they need to stand up to pretty much in order to send a signal to China, I think more than anything else, but you can't, 
look at this and say that the punditry of the last five or six years about the way Americans feel about America and 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 the way Americans feel about the American role in all in in, in the world and all that um, wasn't just hot air, because again, when you ask people what they think they want to do when there's no threat that they can see visibly, they'll say, "Well, I prefer not to do anything." There's no threat. I'm going to go tend my garden. And then there's a threat. And it turns out that there is a light switch in the West that says, "Uh uh-uh, like we're not the richest and most powerful countries in the world for nothing. And we're not going to let this psychotic, you know, shrimp, uh, you know, a Muscovite shrimp tariff, you know, batter us into submission. Like, I'm sorry, that's not who we are. Well, and it, it, it involved a lot of, uh, it, it hasn't yet quite been spoken clearly, but as particularly in Europe, the Russian money that is just scattered all over major European capitals, the amount of money, these, these oligarchs have con- control a lot of assets in non-Russian countries that are now being seized, you know, villas in Tuscany and, you know, apartments in Paris, and that's all for the good. But that, that actually breaking is weirdly culturally for Europe, I think, of a signal event because that uneasy alliance of Russian uh, ill-gotten gains that was spent in other countries and that those other, particularly like things like the art market and other uh, very high-end uh, economies. Estate. Yes, London real estate, the, the European art market. All of that was funded by ill-gotten Russian gains. And now that will too have to collapse and rebuild in a way that hopefully has more transparency. You the know, great also, wisdoms. I'm sorry, continue. Well, I just want to, this is a, a small point, but it's kind of big for us. Um, so everything you're describing, John, this this upheaval in attitudes also means this is a potentially deadly crisis for the NatCons, right? Um, right before this, the, the American isolationist conservatives, populist national conservatives are out there saying, you know, we need a modest foreign policy. None of this has to do with us. Too many wars. Um, no one looking on now thinks this has nothing to do with us. No one thinks this is about some small, faraway place with no repercussions for the U.S. They were, so, uh, you know, looking on Twitter and social media, it's you, you get a sense of a sort of last gasp from them. But, you know, a, a sort of everything that they've been w- working to argue and build over the past, I don't know, two, three years is sort of crumbling before their eyes because they're, what they're saying has no purchase in the face of reality. It always has purchased these ideas, isolationism in particular, always has purchase in the abstract. It has purchase with everyone in the abstract. Who wants to go abroad in search of monsters to slay? I mean, granted, there are people who want to do stuff like that, but most people want to take care of their own and, you know, make sure that they're, you know, like I say, they tend to their garden. Um, it's not that you go out abroad in search of monsters to slay when the monster rises up and is itself going around slaying others in a fashion that untrammeled will mean that the monster will continue to slay and will start choking and might start approaching people whom you consider part of your own. Then you ask yourself, what makes me feel safer? Does it make me feel safer or better to stay home and tend my garden? Or does it make me feel safer to stop this threat in its tracks? And that's always the problem. The essential view of the NatCons and of the far left and all of that is that America is the disease. America is the problem. And we shouldn't be going out and, and you know to destroy monsters abroad because we are the monster at home we need to cure through internal upheaval and internal change. And then you see Putin and you say, we're not Putin. Nothing that we've done. I don't care what they say and how they talk about it and where they were. We didn't go into Iraq in order to seize and and colonize Iraq. We didn't go into Afghanistan in order to seize and colonize Afghanistan. These are not the reasons that we go to war. We go to war for other reasons to maintain order, to deal with, to deal with, you know, uh, monsters abroad whom we take to be a threat. There's this whole thing about how there are wars of choice and wars of necessity. Putin's entered a war of choice here, just like we did in Iraq, according to Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations. 
we did not go into Iraq because we thought it was a war of choice. We thought, and maybe wrongly, that it was a war of necessity because the United States doesn't fight wars of choice like that or certainly hasn't you know, since Teddy Roosevelt's day or whatever. We don't fight wars of choice. That's not who we are. And what's more, most American people know it. And so uh, that idea that we're the bad guys and we better deal with our own badness, which is the heart of NatConism, we are morally corrupt, we're irredeemably bad, we have a neoliberal economy that oppresses people at home by, by deliberately lowering their wages and making them vassals to fentanyl and all of that. And again, now there's a real thing, there's a thing. Is a country going to be taken over in Europe by, a, by, the, by the most expansionist force uh, on the planet today? Um, and what will that mean beside, you know, what, what could that mean otherwise? And they don't have anything to say except, have we forgotten Iraq? Right. <laughs> Which is totally weird because they, I mean, they should be triumphalist in a way because they're kind of getting everything they want. Uh, or at least everything they said they want. You know, they've been warning forever that you know, Russia's boxed in and it's got territorial and national ambitions and it will express them in ways that a realist philosophy can't possibly fathom or predict. That's happening. They've been saying forever that they want Europe to maintain its own its own defense, commit more money to its own defense. Well, here you go. And a united Germany for the first time engaged in military adventurism on the continent. That's great. Right. No problems there in the near term. I mean, I'm one of the few people, I think, who's actually looking who, who looked upon the Pax Americana and a lot that which allowed the continent to reduce its defense expenditures and live under the nuclear umbrella at peace. Um, and we would guarantee we would safeguard that. Um, that produced 70 years of peace. That's over. That's done. That covenant is broken. And yeah, is that something that we should look forward to in the very long term? I'm a little nervous about it. Got to be honest. Well, that is always an interesting point about about um, whether or not if you want a Pax Americana, you're actually better off uh, paying for it uh, as America, because then you don't you know, you it's 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 your, you know, it's your sandbox as well as being your obligation. We've had a united Germany for the longest period in the history of the planet Earth. Now, yeah. And, so you're worried uh, about Germany. Now it's engaged in, in remilitarization and rearmament. And what about and that Japan? hasn't worked out well in the past? Just want to let you know. Right. Yeah. Look, Germany is not only talking about rearming. Germany is talking about ending this 10-year delusional madness that said they were going to unilaterally just shut off their nuclear power plants, um, you know, which is one of the reasons that they were, were so heavy into Nord Stream 2, which is that they were basically cutting off their own source of domestic energy, uh, you know, because uh, a 16-year-old, you know, a 16-year-old loudmouth whined in front of the world and got on the cover of Time magazine, you know, like, that's not how a serious country behaves. And again, faced with fa faced with reality, it's amazing how quickly the worm turned. Now, by the way, this is the other thing maybe we should acknowledge. Like it, there's a kind of irrational exuberance going on here among people like us. And, I, you know, if things go really bad this week um, and, and Putin's like, you know, oh, you think I'm just sitting here, you know, it could be like the moment in one of those, you know, sort of hard, you know, war movies or science fiction movies or something where, where they they act like they won. You know, the the music sweat stops and they're all staying on the planet, going, "Yay, we won!" And then over the horizon <laughs> come the twenty thousand spaceships. You know, I mean, that's what Putin does seem to have in reserve, unless unless he really is a paper tiger and it's hollow and his and there is some form of a possibility that there's internal resistance to the full commission of forces to this and that there might be a coup against him. Well, he only needs to use a tactical nuclear weapon once. I mean, that that's the well, message. Well, that's absolutely that, true. But I mean, talk has. about, talk about, talk about a change in the world order. Yeah. But that's not off the table, <clears throat> not, not necessarily as a, as a expression of Russian doctrine, but strategic and tactical nuclear weapons have been activated as, as Putin says, and that's something that Moscow does. They do it all the time when the conflict rises. So there's no reason to under to overreact to it. But there's also a danger in underreacting to it. Um, 
and to express the extent to which our nuclear deterrent is very capable, uh, better than yours, and that we will respond with reciprocity to a particular event like what Christina is describing, because the Russian doctrine to escalate to de-escalate very much absolutely includes first use and could include first use very near the NATO border to say, hey, listen, you know, you guys are co-belligerents here. We really are. I, we are. We yeah. absolutely are. We are supporting, arming and funding the resistance to a, a Russian uh, military operation. And if Moscow wants to send a signal back off, um, there are many ways it could do it short of the use of unconventional weapons, obviously. But you can't you can't say that that's off the table just because you can't imagine it. It's a failure right. of imagination. Right. OK, I want to talk about what we think we're doing. But first, I want to talk about the X chair luxury supercar of office chairs from the first moment i sat in mine my body said so this is what a real office chair is supposed to feel like look can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working the x chair can can your current office chair heat up or cool down the x chair can it's all in the lmx massage and temperature regulation exclusively designed and made for x chair and once you feel the customized supportive x chairs patented dynamic variable lumbar or dvl your back will never be happy in any other chair again. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all the reasons to love the X chair. Take my advice. Try X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month xchaircommentary.com. So um, the one thing the NatCons are saying that jives a little bit with what Noah has just said is, are we in our irrational exuberance failing to appreciate the danger we are putting ourselves in or the danger the world is, is in uh, from a really untrammeled Putin? from a Putin who is cornered, who feels like he just wanted to march in and take Ukraine and they're stopping him and he can't afford to be humiliated. Russia can't afford to have this reversal. Everything can't, he's got this arrow in his quiver. He's got this gigantic rocket in his pocket. Um, is he gonna go down without a fight? Is he gonna go down? If he's gonna go down, is he really gonna go down without using every means at his disposal to change the terms of the discussion. And if that's the case, given the severity, the astonishing severity of the sanctions that we have imposed and that the world is imposing, we've crashed the ruble. We have seized bank assets. We are seizing personal assets of every rich Russian abroad. We're taking their yachts God only knows what more is going to happen over the course of the next 96 hours uh, to basically immiserate every person in Russia with any kind of foreign deposits and to make it impossible for Russians inside Russia to access their own domestic monies because we have a lot of ability to retard and in interfere with that as well, right? Um, I, I have a response. We, oh, I, I'm just saying, we backing ourselves into a deeper commitment to this struggle than uh, Biden ever thought he was going to have to. Well, a deeper commitment, yes. But in terms of uh, underappreciating the dangers, I think you can only argue that point if you underappreciate the dangers of what rolling over for Putin would mean. Um, you roll over, he doesn't stop. He, he had... Going into this, it wasn't his intention to stop at Ukraine, and he wouldn't stop at Ukraine, right? He'd then hold the, the region cap, captive and with more and better operational power because he'd have all these sort of forward operating bases and after he conquers Ukraine. And then he goes, who knows where next? And then where next? And then at what point? Well, the, the fear are, would are you be gonna, that he would break the NATO alliance by putting a gun to the head of Estonia and say, you're really going to go to nuclear war for Tallinn? And we would say no. Well, but, but at some point, we'd end up with what we're ending up with now. Um, better to end up with it while he's sort of rocked on his heels. Right. I think so look, we need to make this we, one thing that is that is worth making clear 
is Biden says, you know, we're not going to commit troops, right? We're not. And and uh, uh, Linda Greenfield Thomas, the American UN ambassador, said this at the UN and all of that, right? Okay, we're not committing troops. We're not. No one's. We're not going to do a no fly zone. We're not doing anything like that. What we are doing financially is war. I mean, this is tantamount to a blockade. If you blockade a port uh, and and refuse to allow goods to go in and out of a of a country, that is considered an act of war under international law. Blockades are a form of of, of, of war. How people respond is a different question. But it but in international law terms, a blockade is an act of war. We are effectively blockading the Russian economy. That's what's going on, and we are systematically, it appears, trying to find every hole, even though we hear there's a lot of holes in the sanctions, right? Because uh, Biden's Biden's worried about an oil shock, clearly, and they're all worried about so closing off the Russian market or like doing it so instantaneously that you know gas goes up, you know, triples in price, and then we have 1979 and 1973 all over again. So they're very nervous about that, but. If you look at everything, it's effectively a blockade of the Russian economy. We are waging war against Russia. We in Europe are waging war against Russia. Um, how, whether they respond with different tools of war is a different question, right? The different say- tools of war are they could fire at us yeah. or they could cyber attack us or they could do something like that. That's part of the danger here. That again, the irrational exuberance. I, I don't. I think everybody should be thrilled by what we're seeing. It is a thrilling moment, and and shouldn't be robbed. But you know, keeping a cool eye on what's going on here, we should not labor under any illusions that what we're doing do is not are not acts without possible consequences that we are going to have to live through. But this is where political leadership is important and where Biden has an opportunity that I don't have a lot of confidence he's going to seize. We have been, look, it's been costing four bucks or north of four bucks a gallon for a lot of us for filling up our gas tanks for a while now. Like we've been feeling inflation. What would it mean to have a president say, you know what? As part of our commitment to freedom and to democracy abroad, we are you, you might feel pain temporarily at the get more pain than you've already felt because he never really acknowledged the inflation that Americans were feeling. He denied it and tried to talk around it to say, yeah, it, it's going to get worse and we might have to deal with ransomware attacks and all kinds of stuff on the homeland that is a result of this. But we are committed to this for these reasons. Here's what we're doing. Here's how we're going to fix this. I mean, there's a way to rally people. People are willing to sacrifice if they think it's for a good cause. He is not he he expects so little of the people and then turns around and blames us when we don't do what his government wants. And I think that's a frustration. He's got a state of the union tomorrow. He's got an opportunity right now to really tell the American people, both domestically and in foreign policy, what he cares about and what he thinks we should care about. Look, just to give you a sense of the change in public attitude and how these things can change on a dime, uh, CNN came out with a poll this morning. Uh, in the poll, showing almost no partisan split. Imagine this on policies, no partisan split. Democrats and Republicans pretty much saying exactly the same thing within the margin of error, okay? Is there, is there more we should do to punish Russia for what it's doing to Ukraine? 62% of Americans say yes. 30% or something say no. Others have no opinion. Uh, that the number is almost exactly the same for Democrats and Republicans. Use the military. Now, this is an interesting number. 42% say we should use our military against Russia. 42%. So that's not a majority, but it ain't 20%. It's not 10%. And I don't think that Biden would ever have anticipated that number being so high. Now, and I don't know where we'll be in two weeks, with a number like that. Now, maybe it's hit its ceiling. Maybe this is the irrational exuberance of the present moment. People don't want to see boots on the ground in Ukraine. But, you know, we had a no-fly zone over over Bosnia. We we went to war over Bosnia with planes. I mean, granted, we weren't fighting against the nuclear power in Russia. But uh, this is moving very rapidly in a direction in which the American people are fully supportive Democrats as well, Republicans as well as Democrats, of active measures against Russia, and almost 80% say they're paying close attention, which is the highest number. This is a classic 
polling question. Are you paying attention to this or not? Um, this is the highest number we've seen in years on almost any issue, including impeachments, including January 6th, including like voting rights and all of that, almost 80%. So Biden's speaking tomorrow night, State of the Union, right? March 1st. That is, this is the hinge moment of his presidency, potentially. This is, he has been given an opportunity to reset the other poll that came out this weekend. ABC News, Washington Post has him at 37% approval. That is Trump level. He is now achieving Trump at his worst level. The only time Trump was lower than that was Charlottesville. 37%. You know, Biden is heading for the polling exits. A reset is needed. You know he can't do it. <laughs> but maybe he can. I don't know. But he can. But maybe he can. Does anybody think he can? He, his ideas are always so bad. At That's least no problem. one will wear a mask tomorrow, right? They have the option ah, of not wearing a mask. Yes, suddenly, wonder- yes. <laughs> um, this, of course, another big thing. Like a New York State and New York City have basically announced the end of masking in schools and in, and in indoor spaces and all of that. Oddly enough, it's going to take a week uh, to take the masks off because, you know, you really need to pre-plan for making an announcement that you can take your mask off. Very important to wait seven days uh, because, you know, uh, you know, don't throw because people need to find a garbage can in which to throw their mask. But anyway, and and yes, and the uh, congressional doctor said, no, no, it's okay. Masks are optional now. In the you know, uh, uh, in the Capitol. How convenient, just as everybody is. uh, But it's such a trap, though. This is a trap for Democrats because now they'll have to choose whether to mask or not. And they have still have a lot of highly anxious pro-mask COVID forever people in their constituencies. So I'm actually going to watch with fascination. I mean, Biden in particular has been really weird about masking. What about Kamala? Will she wear a mask? Exactly. What about Pelosi? Will she wear a mask? I mean, the Republicans will take them off and at least they'll be consistent. But like the Democrats are going to have a challenge here. I mean, the question is whether the Republicans take them off and then start, you know, like, I don't know, chewing tobacco and spitting. There used to be spittoons on the floor of the Capitol. Indeed, there were until (laughs) I think 1940 or something is really disgusting. My God, can you imagine? Such a such interesting social norm changes, let's just say. Um, Does anybody expect biden to uh to do the kind of remember there have been times jimmy carter did this when he you know he said i've learned more in the last week about the soviets than you know than i'd learned in my life uh you know when they invaded afghanistan it was like really gee what were you not paying attention when they you know when they rolled tanks in hungary I think Biden could ride the wave of exuberance we're talking about and, and see a bump. I don't know that that will be because he has uh, done anything that will be recognized as a remarkable shift. Um, but it, it, it could just be um, a, a sort of um, side effect of, of the enthusiasm. But that's for, also for- scary. <laughs> like what if I don't think that's in his temperament, honestly, or anybody yeah. in, in his administration. But what if they do think that hey, maybe a little rally around the flag effect wouldn't be a terrible idea here. And let's commit everything we have to make sure that this is the single issue of the Biden administration. That gets just as dangerous and escalatory, too. Boy, this is talk about neurotic hawk anxiety that we're expressing here on the commentary podcast. Like we're not talking about Iraq. This is the world's foremost nuclear power with a strategic arsenal that's active and aimed right at our heads. I just want to point out that things are happening that we that we would not have predicted would happen in a direction that helps uh, validate many of the things that we have been saying for the last 25 years. And you and I, Noah, are like anxious as all get out. We are not accepting the gift that has been given to us by history. You can we are tell. rather scared out of our wits yeah and, and you can I'm tell everybody saying, who knows a little bit about conflict theory and this region is not engaging in triumphalism this morning they're quietly scared to death about an escalatory cycle that we've only read about yeah. but i'm happy to engage in triumphalism against the natcons i will say and against glenn greenwald against this world of people who have um again in the guise of saying 
everyone has been stupid for the last 25 years in the way they've conducted everything. And we're the only ones who know how to go uh, because, you know, we, every decision we made was wrong to go here, to go there, to do this, to do that, not to, not to put a tariffs on and do this and do that. And the other thing. And, um, and that basically what, what is revealed is when, when something happens that needs that, every rational actor on the planet says this, you know, we really can't let this go. This really can't stand. They're like, Oh, here we go again. Here we go again with the now, now, you know, what about, uh, by the way, I just want to say one thing. I, I'm going to now say something that's like a horrible or unspeakable. I'm going to say it anyway, JD Vance, right. Uh, most interesting uh, cultural journey of the, of the last decade. So JD Vance, uh, you know, uh, grandson of hillbillies, uh, you know, uh, highly unstable family, drug addicted mother, uh, ends up going into the military, saving his life by going to the military, going to Yale, writes this very heartfelt, moving book about what life is like in Hardscrabble, Ohio, uh, with his family and being raised by, uh, by his grandparents because his mother was unstable and and in bad shape. His mother, who was an educated person, a nurse, had a had a had a profession, but uh, got waylaid by drugs and by men, and and it was all you know terrible. Um, and and the book is about uh, the refusal, of, in part, about the refusal of people in these positions like his mother to take personal responsibility. Uh, for themselves and their families and how he sort of learned this by going into the military and being saved uh, by uh, by learning a certain type of discipline that was not, uh, you know, that was not his, um, you know, that somehow wasn't really in his wheelhouse until then. And he said the most amazing thing uh, at CPAC. He said, quote, I'm sick of being told that we have to care more about people 6,000 miles away than we do people like my mom. So um, he wrote an entire book about how if he had followed the course and path that his mom had laid out for him, he would have ended up like dead or in prison. And now he is throwing his mom up as the mom that we need to help that that isn't being helped by our by our terrible, you know, by our terrible dis- adventurism 6000 miles away. I mean, this is his own book. I don't know anything about his mom. I don't care about his mom. I don't care about him. He wrote a book in which he said, my mom is the problem with the United States. Effectively, my mom, writ small, uh, is the is the thing is the kind of ob- the the kind of person whose choices and the freedoms that we have allowed people like this to exercise have led us down a terrible dead end, culturally and socially, particularly uh, in the in the sort of the the lower middle and middle classes. And now he's using his mom as a weapon against you know uh, doing something in Ukraine. I mean, I am I am so looking forward to him coming in fifth in that primary. Yeah, but Just didn't he also then bounce? He bounced back when he realized there are quite a few Ukrainians at the state he's running for office. <laughs> he, he sort of hedged a little bit later, like to sort of be like, oh, yeah, but go Ukraine. Of, <laughs> it's a lot of mileage out of one mom. Mm-hmm. You, you get you use her on both sides of the argument. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, you Just know. On, on this note of of concern and triumphalism and and neocons versus natcons and what we're looking at right now i don't think it's inconsistent to to both i think it's we're looking at the same thing here when we recognize that the realities of of the of the global landscape that there are very dangerous tyrants who will do very dangerous things that require us to get involved um that is why we are hawkish to some degree. And there's a seriousness to that that requires that you don't just uh, bury your head in the sand and say, uh, look, we don't need to deal with this. Let 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 faraway places be faraway places and concern themselves um, without us. I, I think it's of a piece to be concerned 
while being vigilant. You're vigilant because you're concerned. This is why you do this early and often. Yeah. Our, our hawkishness, as it were, is designed to communicate to adversaries like near peer competitors, including China and Russia, that the stakes are thus, the stakes will be thus this high if you engage in the sort of territorial acquisition that you want to by force, that you're signaling as clearly as possible to everybody. This is the cost you will pay, and it has to be higher than the rewards associated with adventurism, uh, irredentism, what have you. And we didn't do that here. We have failed to communicate that the costs would be this high. It's a strategic right. bungle. He strategically misread the situation. He misread us. He misread everything. But that's our fault for failing to communicate right. in un unambiguous terms what the costs of this would be. Yeah. Neoconservative hawkishness, where, where it differed from conservative hawkishness, I'm talking now in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, even though neoconservatism really only arose in the 70s, was that the centerpiece of neoconservative hawkishness was deterrence. It was containment. Conservative hawkishness was about rollback. The theory of conservative hawkishness was we couldn't just sit there while the Soviets took over country after country. We needed to go engage. We needed to go fight in Hungary to liberate the Hungarians or, or Latin, fight Latin America is probably a better example. Well, no, but those were Reagan those were missions yeah, but that, in Latin America. No, but that, that I'm talking about rollback. Who lost China? That was a conservative idea that we allowed because we were too chicken to engage with the Soviets militarily. Neoconservatism was to the left of conservatism because it embraced deterrence. We needed to spend money on defense. We needed to have a, the most powerful military in the world and all of this to retard Soviet ambitions and to say, if you really want to go toe to toe with us and awake the sleeping giant, we will be there not only to match you, but to best you. And that's what we lost over the last 12 years. And I will say Obama is really the cause of the, of the boulder rolling down the hill. It was the notion that we no longer needed to be a deterrent power, that it was too expensive and it wasn't fun. And, you know, we needed to pay for health care. And the 80s called and they wanted their foreign policy back and all of this. And everything that we ever did, every spent, every ounce of spending that we did in the course of the 1980s and the Reagan doctrine was to create the conditions. We didn't even know it at the time, but to create the conditions that would allow us to win the Cold War without firing a shot. Because we were just too impregnable and they couldn't knock us off our off our perch and they were being forced into spending and and tactics that they could not match the soviets and they basically gave up the ghost the internal contradictions of communism as george kennan said in the famous long telegram of 1947 the the internal contradictions would expose themselves and they would then be left and then we won and then as charlie wilson said <laughs> Uh, at the end of Charlie Wilson's war, we fucked up the end game. And we fucked up the end game in Afghanistan, letting the Soviets come in, and we fucked up the end game here. And now here we are. Uh, I'm sorry to be using this language, but it is the perfect language. And because we took our eye off the ball and decided that this was no longer, this cup could pass from our lips, we're now here. And if we had done things differently, we would never have been here. But of course, if you run the counter history, we would never have known that we would have been here in the first place because Putin wouldn't have, you know, taken a bite out of Crimea and then said, hey, you know what? That tasted pretty good. And I, I suffered no consequences from it. So let me finish my adventure in Syria. Let me get my ducks in a row. And let me get a little crazier. And I'll go for the whole thing because they're just going to stand there and do nothing. And uh, apparently that's not, we weren't just going to stand here and do nothing. But I, I think that's the key to understanding where, where we, how we should be thinking about the next two weeks. Like Zelensky is a hero. The Ukrainian people have shown us an incredible uh, model of uh, resistance, perseverance, and seriousness of purpose um, uh, that's, you know, beautiful and exciting, and I'm very frightened for them.
and uh, and uh, you know, if Putin weren't really weren't a bad guy, then you know there would be no reason to be afraid. But he's really a bad guy, and he will be pushed into he could be pushed into a Hobson's choice here that could lead to unimaginably horrific consequences. So we have to end on a low note. We have to. It's our brand. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.